This is Solemn Literary Press. I'm your host, Riley Bounds, and this is the Solemn Podcast, where we discuss and examine the intersection of the modern renaissances in evangelical literature, philosophy, and spiritual formation. Today, I'm excited to have Leslie Clinton on the podcast. Leslie Clinton is a writer, editor, and high school English teacher. Her chapbook of poems, Calling the Garden from the Grave, published through Finishing Line Press, placed second among books of creative verse in the National Federation of Press Women 2021 Communications Contest. In 2019, Clinton received the Lucille Johnson Clark Memorial Award from Houston Poetry Fest. Her poetry and book reviews have appeared in publications such as America, Think, Mezzo Kamen, The Wind Hover, Presence Journal, Exasis Magazine, Reform Journal, Christianity and Literature, and Texas Poetry Calendar. In addition to teaching and writing, Clinton serves as a board member of Catholic Literary Arts and is editor-in-chief of the Chronicle of Strake Jesuit College Preparatory. She has an MA in teaching from Grand Canyon University and is pursuing an MFA in creative writing at the University of St. Thomas. Visit her at leslieclinton.com. That's L-E-S-L-E-Y Clinton.com. More information will be given in the show notes, including links to her social media if you want to find out more. So, Leslie, welcome, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Riley. All righty. Why don't you just tell us a bit about yourself? All right. Um, Well, so I started writing poetry um, really before I can remember. I know the earliest memory I have of writing is in maybe kindergarten. It was a story that I wrote, not a poem. It's Mm. prose. And... Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember in elementary school, my mother sending out a poem that I wrote for school to a journal that published children's work, and it got published, and I was so excited. But as much as my parents filled the house with literature and we were a reading household, I really don't remember any books of poetry that were my favorite or a whole lot of poems that I had memorized when I was younger. So it's a little bit mysterious to me. And I kind of like that, <laughs> that mm-hmm. it, in the, you know, um, the background of my memory. And, and I don't know, but I, I do remember writing. And I know that by high school, I was, I was writing quite a bit on my own creating poetry and you know I'd kind of stay up late I would write I would write Star Wars fan fiction and also (laughs) poems into the wee hours I was a a nerd but but so I know that it was something that was always in me just this Mm. desire to write Um, and so by college when I had figured out that I wanted to be an English major I worked on the literary magazine editorial team and I submitted work there Mm -hmm. Um, and and really, once I graduated from college and had started working as a teacher, a few years into motherhood, when I had um, our 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 children were babies, that's when I started writing in earnest. Mm-hmm. I felt a stronger calling at that time to develop my craft, and and so that's where I I started. And it was during a hiatus from full time teaching. So when mm-hmm. we talk mm-hmm. about the creative space that, you know, that artists need to create. I think about that a lot. I think about that Mm -hmm. a lot because I think that we have a lot of responsibilities in our lives. And sometimes we're called to put aside things we love to attend to those responsibilities. Um, And then other times we're meant to struggle to make room for something. But there was this, this time period where I was working part-time and editing and 
tutoring and whatnot. I wasn't in the full-time classroom. And that is where I really started sending things out. So there was something about having that little bit of extra time that got me going in mm -hmm. my writing career. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that, that uh, your like shift to poetry kind of coincided with uh, your becoming a mother. Um, what, what do you think? Maybe there's a, is there a correlation there you think between like, well, creating life and creating poetry? I would not be surprised at all. A lot of my poetry came out of that process of, you know, um, of becoming a mother and uh, and all the struggles and challenges and joys that come with it. Mm -hmm. uh, and part of it is that, you know, new mothers have so little time that we write in the nooks and crannies. And so to create something as short as a haiku is realistic, whereas something longer seems impossible. And I, I wonder if that had something to do with it as well, that um, mm -hmm. that. I to writing in um, shorter forms. I, I really wanted to work on short form poems when I started because I tend to be verbose and my writing when I was younger was very wordy. And mm -hmm. I had, in, when I wrote, you know, kind of business writing and articles, I had to learn to uh, um, pare it down, make it more concise and clear. And, uh, and when I wrote poetry, I said, I want to write really short form poetry to see if I can do it. And then I had to kind of, I had to kind of push back the other way because then my poetry became very spare and I didn't want to be limited to that kind of voice either. So I've been mm -hmm. working on giving a little more breathing room to my poetic voice uh, in the, in recent years. Yeah. It, it seems like kind of a rite of passage that young writers have to like be verbose and uh, just <laughs> use, use words that are completely unnecessary. Um, and then you grow up a little bit and uh, it becomes a little bit more uh, full bodied. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's, yeah, natural. Well, um, what do you think it is that draws you to poetry in particular? Um, you know, I think people write poetry because they feel compelled from deep within to do so. I just, I think it, there's some urge deep within, some calling. I think it's a calling, but um, there's a, a St. John Paul II wrote a letter to artists Mm -hmm. And he talks about what the artists do, what our role is, what that calling is about. And he says that we sense in our work some mystery of the creation. And he says, with which God, the sole creator of all things, has wished in some way to associate us, wished us to be mm -hmm. able to associate with that mystery of creation. And so for me, writing poetry is, is participating in the mystery of creation. And mm -hmm. that um, I get to marvel at the wonders of the universe, the seen and the unseen world. Um, I get to know myself and my creator more deeply. Um, I think poetry is a way to, to connect and, and heal and serve and build and praise and thank and honor and seek and find all of these things. As, a, as an educator in a, a Jesuit school, I'm formed in the Ignatian spiritual tradition. So that's the um, St. Ignatius of Loyola's spiritual teachings. And he talks about finding God in all things. And so we, we practice the kind of this spiritual art of looking for God in all situations. Where was God in our day? We reflect on that quite a bit. Where do we see God? Where are we being offered comfort and consolation? Um, and uh, and so I think poetry is a way of seeing, you know, it's opening our eye to that spiritual dimension in, mm -hmm. um, in the mundane world. And uh, and so it's it's a way of searching for God in all things. Yeah. Um it's odd too like uh you're you talking about um just like exploring the mysteries of the universe 
And um, you're, you have this kind of theme that I've noticed with uh, cosmology that, that seems to be coming up again and again with, with your work. And that's actually something that um, another Catholic uh, poet, uh, Laura Rees Hogan, she kind of um, focuses on that as well. Uh, so am I, am I right in kind of uh, seeing that? And is that like, uh, is that correct? Yes, that's astute. And yes, it is. It's true. And I, you know, I've written a review of her amazing book, Litany of Flights, um, the reviews in Christianity and literature. And I think one reason that, um, that we were drawn to one another as, as creative, as, as poets, you know, is this, um, I, I, well, she has a, she has a very contemplative, um, I think, caritas, or, um, I'm sorry, charism. She has a very contemplative charism. When, and I, I'm really drawn to that. I think it's beautiful. But mm-hmm. part of that is that, you know, she sees things in their grandiosity and then kind of in the, she also gets that, um, that macro lens, it gets really close up to things. And she's looking for the wonder of God in, in all those, um, mm-hmm. all those ways. And I, I try to do that too. And so that's really neat that you notice that connection. Yeah. And it's um, what, what's interesting about it is that your voices, even though you, you hone in on certain like common themes, your mm-hmm. voices are, are actually very quite different. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and we'll, we'll talk a little more, more about your artistic voice in a, uh, a little while here, but I did want to ask um, how long it just took you to cultivate the poetic voice that you currently use. Till now, how old am I? <laughs> 42 <laughs> years? <laughs> um, you know, and it's a work in progress, but I, you know, as an adolescent, my work was more sentimental and mm-hmm. dreamlike. And in college, it took on more of a confessional tone, even when the speaker was not myself. I, I dramatize things all the time. And, you know, people always assume the speaker is the poet. The speaker is not always the poet. But mm-hmm. it was that still had that confessional experiential tone. And early adulthood, I kept the kind of experiential aspect um, or voice. And, um, and then in recent years, I have started to exert a little more control over my mm-hmm. voice and discipline myself a little bit more to, to have some distance. Um, you know, I, uh, p- part of what I'm doing to hone my craft is I'm uh, pursuing an MFA at the university of St. Thomas. And mm. I think there has been some, a lot of beneficial, um, influence on my poetic voice from my work there. And part of it has been the control, uh, to kind of distance. So it's not about me. It's about the world around me, you know, and, mm. and I want, I want to step back as much as possible um, to right. allow the things to speak for themselves. And then the characters that I create. Um, so that's a way of, again, stepping outside of myself and letting poetry be a listening act rather than a, a speaking act. Right. Yeah. It's um. so it's interesting that like, as you progressed into your poetic career, you kind of took a step back. Um, and it became less about uh, confessions and less about uh, uh, you being the personal narrator as you like stepping back and observing something as a, um, maybe an impersonal kind of uh, omniscient narrator. Um, do you think that, um, do you think this kind of naturally comes with uh, time and age and just writing, or is that something like particularly for you? Is it something particular to you? There, that's such a great question. And I think it's probably a mix. Mm. I think some of it is, some of it is age. And, um, you know, I think that just happens naturally a little bit. And I think it's okay to work out things through poetry when you are younger and 
you know, and to speak from your own perspective. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, mm -hmm. Even when you're older, you do that as well. But um, so there is something, um, there's something about, so an author that I am uh, just amazed by all the time is uh, is Sigrid Unset, who wrote Kristen Laverne's daughter. She's not a poet, you know, she's a novelist, mm -hmm. a Norwegian novelist. And um, one we studied her work in the MFA program and we looked at the control that she exerts um, over herself as a narrator and how, can, you know, she really, really presents things without, without letting you know how the narrator feels about them quite often. And it, and the effect is, is really stunning. It's amazing. And so I, I'm inspired by that. And mm -hmm. I want that as well. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, well, you mentioned the influence of your peers on the MFA program on your poetic voice, but um, besides them, like who are your like main poetic influences? So if I think back, because we, you know, we become influenced starting when we're young, when we're children. If I think mm -hmm. back to childhood, I remember this. I was at a friend's house. I would go over to my friend's house and her mom had um, a Maya Angelou poem, Phenomenal Woman on the Refrigerator. Mm. and and I never forgot that poem you know why is that in my memory why do I see it on the fridge and remember it and remember lines from it there's something there and I think that um the arresting voice that the poet has which is ironic that I'm saying that because we're just talking about how kind of controlled and pulled back my work has been often but I really mm. uh was inspired by the strength of the poetic voice in that poem and also the detail, the use of detail is spare, but, but powerful detail. So that, that's something that's rattling around right in my right. head, in my, my mind. Uh, and then sixth grade, my friend and I had to memorize Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's The Tide Rises, The Tide Falls. Oh, for no. class. And we had to recite <laughs> it. And, um, and we can still call each other on the phone and start, you know, the tide rises, the tide falls, the twilight darkens, the curlew calls and start laughing and reciting it. We never forgot it. And, but, you know, I came across a conversation on Twitter one time about Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and they were kind of disparaging toward him and his work and saying that it wasn't very serious. And, and somebody was standing up for him, you know, defending his honor as a poet. And, and I thought he, he stuck with me all these years that that poem, um, the narrative, the mystery, um, the rhyme and the the meter, the form stuck with me. So I think there was something very powerful in his work as well. And I think that he deserves more respect. Yeah. <laughs> so stand up for his, for his work as well. I think that it shaped me somehow and maybe made me open to to formal verse in a way mm. that uh, I might not have been otherwise. Right. Um, so and in, in, in high school, you know, I remember, um, I remember do not go gentle into that good night and Dunstan Thomas. And I remember coming across an Yvonne Boland poem um, mm -hmm. that really enchanted me. And in college, I was struck by the moderns, T.S. Eliot, Wallace Stevens, and the the lyrical prose of Virginia Woolf. I know it's not poetry, oh, but her prose is very lyrical. Mm -hmm. And then when I started teaching English. Uh, I started to fall in love with the with ancient epic poetry, and mm -hmm. which I had liked in high school, but I really didn't understand it as poetry until until yeah. I began teaching it. And then, um, and at, and then since when I started teaching, I I discovered po poets like Claude McKay and Lee Young Lee and Seamus Haney and Robert Frost, Lyde 
knew of Robert Frost, but I don't think I understood the layers until I started teaching. And mm-hmm. uh, Achebe, who writes poetry, not just novels, and uh, Liesl Mueller, who wrote one of my favorite, all-time favorite poems. So there's a bunch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, health, healthy mix. Um, it, it's so odd that you say that, uh, that you like, uh, you began to fall in love with epic poetry when you started teaching it. Actually, mm-hmm. I started teaching Beowulf to eighth grade um, just like a month ago. And I mean, I fell in love with it. And I was, I was just like, man, this is so awesome. And Seamus Heaney does such a, such an amazing job of translating it. Yes. Um, so it was like, yeah, it's, I feel kind of like a con man for uh, not knowing anything about it before I started teaching it. But, you know, I guess that's just the way teaching works. That is the way teaching works. Yeah. And, and, uh, and that's why, that's why Tolkien was so inspired by, you know, uh, by so much of that old work being right. a Saxon because it's amazing <laughs> it is mm-hmm. yeah well um we'll talk a little bit more about your uh formal verse tendencies as you as we get more into your work proper um but for now why don't you just tell us uh when did christianity become an influence on your poetry so i, I uh I, I think consciously it was when i started writing in in earnest you know in my mm-hmm. in my young adulthood once i was a mother um and I had already, I had already been a teacher for a while. You know, I, I left full-time teaching for a while when my children were young. And so I had already been sort of formed in the, um, the Ignatian spiritual tradition as an educator. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I had, I had been, I went to the university of St. Thomas. So for my undergrad, uh, and I'm back there for my grad for my MFA now, but so there were things that had kind of influenced me. So by young adulthood, I, I had these kind of spiritual yearnings that I wanted to um, uh, I wanted to influence my work with these things, but I certainly didn't know how. Um, I was lucky enough to find a, a great mentor in um, the writer Sarah Cortez, mm-hmm. who, um, and I serve on Catholic, the board of Catholic Literary Arts, which is the nonprofit that she founded. And mm-hmm. she has a very sharp editorial eye, a very meaningful vision of a writer's calling, and she has a delightful performance demeanor. Um, she was inspired by a great poet that she knows not to hide her faith from the writing community, no matter mm. how out of vogue it may be, because there are centuries of Christian poetry that form this rich literary treasure trove. And what a beautiful thing to be part of. And so she helped open my eyes to that possibility, because when I started writing, I felt I wanted to offer my writing as a gift. But I realized that most publications, at least the ones that I knew of at the time, uh, didn't want anything to do with a poet of faith. Mm. I thought that I would either have to become a strictly devotional writer and write, you know, obviously devotional poetry. And that was the only kind of poetry I wrote and published there and and other kinds of writing. Or I would have to um, just not talk about God or include anything, um, you know, and and not um, openly embrace my faith if I wanted to publish. And that's really a false dichotomy. Um, and I was thankful to to discover that um, mm-hmm. I was letting myself. There are plenty of readers, plenty of publishers who don't dismiss the work of writers who have a Christian worldview. Mm. So, yeah, and um, I, I've said it before. I'll say it again. When I when I started Solem, um, I was so illiterate when it came to the stuff that I thought that Solem would be the only one on the scene, like doing what we're doing, like pr- promoting, uh, you know, Christian themed work. And then 
I, I jumped in and I realized, oh, wow, I was sorely mistaken. Um, yeah, I mean, it, there's just a bevy of, of uh, outlets out there that are like academically respected as well, namely Presence. I mean, that's a huge player. Um, and then, of course, I just learned about yours. Um, you're the editor-in-chief of uh, the um, uh, college preparatory, right? Um, well, mine is, yes, and mine is more for, it's our alumni magazine for our, but it's still editorial experience, which I'm very happy to have. But mm -hmm. you know who is, um, uh, Dappled Things is right. doing cool things. And oh, there are so many, there are so many. Um, I've been published at um, Reform Journal and um, uh, um, I think it Radiant is another one, Grotto Network. So mm -hmm. they're just, yes, they're a bevy, like you said. <laughs> so yeah. many. And I remember those early days of sharing with my little group of writers, you know, our, our kind of Catholic poetry society group, we had workshop together and um, we would eat banana bread at Sarah Cortez's house, you know, and, mm -hmm. and workshop poems and talk about um, where are we going to publish these, these poems. And there were, you know, we'd find a few and it was like, there were so many more out there. We were just discovering how many there were. So it's, it's really wonderful. Um, well, just generally, do you think that, Christianity can lend itself to poetry in a way that uh, competing worldviews like uh, agnosticism or atheism can't. I have a, I have a good quote for that. If you don't okay. mind, Go ahead. answer yeah. someone else's words. Um, there's a a writer named Joel Clarkson who wrote in uh, Word on Fire uh, that um, it, it, this was an article about writing in times of crisis. Mm. And, um, and I, and the reason I found this article is that I was looking for something to talk about my, my chapbook and, you know, because it does talk about suffering and some of the characters are in, are in states of suffering. Um, mm -hmm. and so I wanted to, to be able to articulate why, um, why I think there's still hope in that. And so this is the quote I found that I, I just really answers this question that I had really well, God has never ceased his creative mending of the world, which becomes most potent precisely when we feel things have most completely gone wrong. Mm. It is in the silence of uncertainty that Christians in the creative arts might most uniquely show the consoling love that enters into the voids in our lives and fills them with life, light, form, color, and music. Mm. There it is. <laughs> I, you know that's the answer uh, to your question right there i just think it's so beautifully said mm -hmm. yeah definitely um yeah it, it seems that uh god forms a groundwork in which we can stand on for beauty that uh maybe others um that lack a uh, metaphysical foundation like that can't um something that to me that my my faith offers me is it is the ability for reverence and wonder mm -hmm. You know, that gratitude, the wonder that's full of gratitude, like, thank you for making this world. Wow. You know, like mm -hmm. if you don't, if nobody made it, there's nobody to be thankful to <laughs> and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and to, to wonder in that way of gratitude that, that at, at the being who created that, um, I think that's a special thing that we can do mm -hmm. in our poetry. And then, um, and yeah, to have that feeling of utter gratitude and reverence, um, right. Is, is there is a gift yeah definitely um i think you see that too of um other uh theistic um poetry well uh poetry from theistic faiths like uh 
uh, Islam. Um, you see, you see a lot of that, uh, the reverence crossing over into something like that as well. Um, yeah. So why don't you um, tell us a little bit, a little bit about your chapbook, uh, Calling the Garden from the Grave. All right. Um, so I wrote this book. This this chapbook provides a mosaic of reflections on spiritual endurance. Um, the garden springing up from the grave site symbolizes, you could say, the workings of grace on the world, um, the miraculous life that manifests when we accept and fulfill our God-given callings with hope mm -hmm. and with gratitude. Um, and so if um, we were talking about a theme of the book, um, I would uh, I would say that it, the theme is this: that spiritual endurance arises from dauntless hope. Um, and it's manifest in our living out of our mission or in mm. our trust in, in God's miraculous power to, to make all things new, even when all seems lost. Mm. Mm. Okay. Um, what about the title? Um, the title is the, you know, the, the springing up of life where it seemed like in a place of death, you know, mm. so it's, it's a, it's a resurrection um you know kind of nodding to the resurrection right. and uh, and the book is split into two parts and the first part is like a restless calling in my arms it's called that it's a line from one of the poems but it's about um the restlessness we feel from our callings you know god is calling us towards something and then the second mm -hmm. half undying fire is the the dauntless courage and hope that we need to pursue those callings and not all of the not all of the speakers or characters in that second half or even in the first mm -hmm. one do actually answer the callings like they don't all choose hope but they're all grappling with it so it's you know you get to see the whole gambit it's like the there are the ones who choose hope or who are in a hopeless situation and what do i do you know and so um it's a it's a reflection meditation on that okay um yeah so you uh, alluded to the resurrection with the uh, with the title um and that would obviously have a hopeful tone to it um at face value when i when i first saw it i was like i wonder if this is uh supposed to be hopeful or if it's supposed to be kind of a, a dark uh take on this because um uh, i mean obviously it's the garden of eden that I, well i'm assuming it's the garden of eden um that we're calling to from the grave and that would mean that we're we're dead mm -hmm. <laughs> so um I, I was just uh i was wondering if um there was kind of a uh, an intentional uh, paradox there, or uh, how would you how you explain it? I love that you put that perfectly, and I think um, and I think that's where some of the characters in the poems are. They've mm -hmm. you know they're they're still in the grave, and they've they've chosen to stay there, um, or they're not courageous enough to take that leap or to discern their callings and follow them, and you know all of that. Mm -hmm. Just you know so. Uh, we're looking at we're looking at both choices in mm. in the book and um and so i i wanted there to be i want the grave in the title the suffering needs to be there yeah <laughs> suffering has to be there we're not shying away from that mm. but you know we have this we have a that you know the way to the cross is through the suffering you know we we understand suffering differently um in the christian faith and um that's where we walk with jesus so it's there's something, a mysterious, miraculous journey in suffering. So we we certainly don't want to cut it out of our of our work. Right. 
-hmm. Yeah, no, that's another reason I really like your work is that um, it's 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 very thoroughly Christian. I mean, it, it's, it makes no bones about that. Um, but it's so grounded in reality. It it it's um, it effectively crosses from uh, natural reality into the supernatural, and that it's just it's a bridge. Um, and I, I mean, I just I really I really enjoy that that you can like operate in both spheres, and it's not um, it's not just so quick to get to the glory that it it shuns what we deal with on earth so yeah um well just what led you to write calling the garden in the first place you know those poems were in me they were they wanted to get out and and they wanted to be written <laughs> so they you know despite uh, i really didn't have a writing community when i started uh this is before i had found my my writing community and um and i so it was kind of a lonely endeavor mm -hmm. Um, just, you know, in the little nooks and crannies, when I had a little bit of time, I would start typing and I, and I, and I really, um, I just didn't, I didn't even, I didn't have like mentorship or anything. So I really feel like these poems were just telling me that, you know, they, they needed to be, I was led to them. I found them, you know, I discovered them. And, uh, and so I, I began to pull them together for a manuscript, um, a little bit later after I had, after I'd had some publishing success with individual poems, uh, mm. I started to have a collection and I wanted to, I was looking at them and going, what, am, what have I been writing about? You know, what have I been writing about? And then I was able to sort of write more once I realized that I had a thematic idea going and I had a, a story to tell uh, through mm -hmm. this mosaic approach. Then I started putting them together for manuscript and, and I saw that Finishing Line Press had a contest. So I entered the contest and I didn't win it, but I did receive an invitation to or a contract, an offer of a contract. And mm. okay, so then I had to go through the process of discerning whether, you know, okay, is this meant to to happen and meant to be and researching and and then saying yes, it is. I think it's meant to be. This book is meant to meant to be published. So um, mm. that's kind of how it came about. Okay. Um, it, yeah, it's interesting that uh, like you didn't set out really to write a poetry book. You you set out to write poems. But then you look back on it and you were like, well, what is what is this about? And then you you figure out that this is a book. That's actually um, I've seen other other writers do that where they just write and then they look back on it. It's like, hey, I have written a book, you know, um, so. Yeah. And not everything went in, you know, there were there were pieces or poems that I had written that didn't that didn't go into the the manuscript because they yeah. didn't work towards that uh, that mosaic that I was creating but um and and I don't know if I will always do it that way I think probably uh, my next my next book will be a little bit more um uh well I don't know I say that I say that but there, I'm writing things all the time so yeah. maybe not I'm not as prolific as, as other writers because I you know I have three kids and uh you know and and a, a very very and, and teaching Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, teaching and editing that magazine and everything. So, um, so I'm not as prolific as others, and I don't know, but I am creating things all the time that I don't think. Oh, I'm making this for for a manuscript. You know, I'm I'm just making poems. So, uh, it I'm thinking that it'll be a little bit more focused from the beginning, uh, but I I can't say that for sure because it's sort of in the works, but not really yet. So I'm yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's similar between writers and musicians, where like their first uh, album, you know. I mean, you have your whole life to write that. And then and the, ne the next one, the second one is probably going to be like six months or so. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it, it has to be like more focused, you know, thematically concise and 
stuff like that. Um, so maybe, maybe there's some crossover there. But um, so now going more into your writing um, in depth, uh, we talked a little bit about the impersonal narration that some of your poems uh, have where you take a step back and the narrator seems to uh, see everything from a distance and is able to um, read the thoughts of others. And um, well, for example, uh, in the uh, Cassiopeia A circa 1690, the poem that we published in um, Solemn Journal, Spring 22, the narrator is actually far back in time enough in space to observe not only a supernova, but the people that are observing the supernova, which is pretty remarkable. Um, and then another example is going to be that impersonal omniscient narrator in the cathedral sees morning, which is the capstone of calling the garden, uh, wherein the narrator muses on the formation of the cathedral and what is seen throughout its existence. So I'll have to say, um, whereas most poets kind of incline toward narrating their poems personally from their own personal perspective, you seem to kind of take a step back uh, and you observe the events uh, from a distance. So um, what do you think is motivating that poetic distance exactly? Um, I think it comes back to that we talked about earlier where um, writing is doing what it's meant to do, I think most powerfully when it draws us outside of ourselves. Mm. And so I have been trying to um, I have, I heard this said the phrase, tune my ear to the divine music a little bit more, listen mm -hmm. more. And, um, and so that I'm outside, I'm getting outside of my little own little imaginary fiefdom <laughs> when I write. And, mm -hmm. um, and I think that with, with, with that poem with Cassiopeia, it, um, it provided, there was this opportunity to, to have different time periods, you know, because again, you know, <laughs> the stars are burning for so long, you know, we can go back and pass and somebody could be looking at the same star. So I, I had a, a really great time crafting that work and drawing back the, that the eye, the kind of narrator's eye and, uh, and looking over a long period of time and then looking at the universals what are the timeless aspects um what are mm -hmm. the universals and then taking some of um the you know kind of the mythological background of Cassiopeia with the the historical and uh and then the kind of the scientific what is a supernova and so that was it was fun to fuse all of those elements together and I really just wanted to get out of the way of all those wonderful wonderful threads and what right. do book yeah no I, again I, I like that you you deal more with objective things than um just your subjective experience because when we do that i mean it kind of well it's our own private reality it's reality but i mean it's, it's private and it's it's um it, it can speak to others but there is a certain threshold where it's like it has to be universal enough for people to uh uh to apprehend it and it has to also deal with some kind of truth not just your own your own personal what's true about you but what's true about us all as as people um and i mean i, I like that you uh you focus more on that than you do uh just your own uh what's relevant to you in, in your life now um another thing that you do that is a, a little bit um well unorthodox as orthodoxy goes today um <laughs> is that you uh you write in formal styles um, 
so in his review, which was which was a great review, by the way, um, uh, uh, J.D. Graham notes in his review of Calling the Garden that you use poetic form to exploit meaning in the poem's content. So, for example, he he uh, highlights Graceless, which is uh, in Calling the Garden. The subject there is a diver, uh, and she breaks her form in midair. So, uh, concurrently, you break uh, your form of iambic tetrameter down to some form of trimeter, um, which breaks the rules that you set. Uh, so, first off, just what inclines you to write in a formal style? And um, is it kind of easier for you or is it harder for you to write in these formal styles than in free verse? Uh, so, I think that the craftsmanship of form provides a structure and boundaries that I have found increasingly beneficial over the years. Mm. And if, if we're talking about which one is harder versus definitely harder, yeah. <laughs> writing in meter is definitely harder. Mm. Um, you know, you can never ever get stuck in free verse as badly as you can get stuck in a, in a metered poem <laughs> When you're yep. missing the right word <laughs> for that, you need you know the syllable count and and uh, and whatnot and uh, and I think there's something wonderful about that. It's so oh gosh, when you're stuck and you cannot get out the way that you planned on getting out, and you have to find another way if mm. you want if you want to maintain that meter, if you think it's important enough in that line to maintain it, uh, then you are forced to take a different approach so that again, remember I've been talking about being pulled outside of ourselves and how much that, how important that is. Mm. And I think meter is another tool for that drawing us mm. outside of ourselves. And so you have to come up with a solution that you didn't want. The parameters are external. Um, and you, you basically you're giving up some control to this, this ideal form. And then you work towards it and you make it come to life with the, you know, the, that iteration, the, you know, your unique, manifested iteration um in in it, it, as only you can do as only the that the poet in that moment can do right so you're working with something timeless with a form and then you're bringing your uniqueness to it in a in a brand new way so there's such a wonderful uh a paradox there it's well or something like um you know where you have a a chord progression say in jazz where there's a lot of improvisation over a chord mm -hmm. a bass chord structure it's it's that kind of um energy right. Yeah, and, and and still grounded in the structure, uh, which is yeah, and formally very and you know they're doing difficult things like the you know it's not easy to accomplish that, but it needs to sound effortless and and be easy or uh, seem right. easy you know to the reader. Um, so I think of form as kind of a like beautiful architecture or or this you know classically formed ancient vase something mm -hmm. has a. It, it, elevated it into the form of art and it stands there alone in its structure and um and all of the sensory elements as well as its meaning and so i think that form offers that there's this timelessness and um and i think it's worth the effort i think it's worth mm -hmm. the effort for those reasons so so like i said i found it increased increasingly beneficial and i have been working on um, refining my craft and my ability to work with meter over time so i'm not quite there yet but i'm still working on it mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so did you did you start out as a poet kind of writing more in, in formal verse or did you kind of have a shift from free verse to formal verse as you uh, matured? You know, I. I had forgotten about this, but in high school. 
my, uh, our, a teacher, senior year, my English teacher said, we learned about sonnets. And I remember her saying, I was going to have you write sonnets, but I realized how hard they are. And so instead mm. we're just going to do this other thing, maybe a few lines or something. And, and that stuck with me that it was too hard to do, you know? And, and mm. so one of, one of my, one of the poems that I remember writing in college, one of my early poems was a sonnet. It's like, I always wanted to do it. And so for a few years I was, I'm going to write that sonnet. I'm going to write that sonnet. And I did, I wrote one. And so I was writing in a formal structure from my earliest kind of, you know, once I was old enough, you know, and once I'd learned about it, um, I was mm -hmm. writing in with a form. Uh, and then I think I tapped back into like, again, those old, you know, Longfellow poems. And, and so it was already kind of it was, it was in me. I had that. And I, and I also have a, a little bit of a musical background as well mm -hmm. and choir. And, and so I think the, the, the rhythms and the, you know, I think that's a, it's easier if you have some musical background than yeah. not. Um, so that's probably, so I know that I started doing it, but I, I, a lot of my earlier work was free verse because I loved the modern, I loved you know, modern writers who did not write in verse. And so I, I, and I thought free verse was, was in style and that so I was going to do <laughs> style and I didn't want to be old-fashioned you know what a what a mistaken idea <laughs> mm. right um yeah I've uh my, I've noticed well maybe maybe it's just because I'm being more introduced to this field but at least at least from my perspective I see a shift back to older forms among poets now um have you have you noticed the same or do you think that that's um perhaps me just reading into it. I don't know. I'm so steeped in it now that I'm, I'm around it all the time. And the people I know, I mean, I know a lot of people who are just starting out with it. And, and so I know that it's not everywhere, but I know so many people writing in form now that I feel like it must be resurging a little bit. Yeah. And, um, and again, I don't, I don't, I still like free verse poems and I don't have any problem with them. And I don't mean to, you know, kind of knock them because I've written a lot of free verse and, and will I'm sure again, but mm -hmm. there is, um, there is more of an openness to, you know, craftsmanship than I think there, there has been for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't mean to knock free verse either. I just, I, I guess I'll put it more as like a, there's been a rediscovery or something of what these traditional forms can do uh, poetically uh, for, for your voice. Um, so at, at least that's an observation from an editor. So there, there, um, there were the new formalists a few decades back who yeah. kind of researched a little then. And then I think it dipped down again. And I feel, I, I agree with you. I think that it might be having a resurgence right now. Yeah. What was Robert Frost one of the new formalists, if you know offhand? Earlier. He was earlier. earlier. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, you've received just a ton of accolades uh, in your poetry career so far. Uh as uh, you've only been doing this for um a few years now, right? Publishing. Um Yeah, I started sending things out around maybe like twenty eleven. So okay. maybe but you know, started out a in a decade ago, just with little pieces here and there. And, and the chapbook got published in 2020. So it, right. that's a couple of years. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's pretty, it's pretty short time to get the recognition that you have uh, calling the garden. Again, it placed in uh, second in the books of creative verse in the national federation of press women, 2021 communications contest 
And then he received the Lucille Johnson Clark Memorial Award from Houston Poetry Fest in 2019. That's, that's a lot of ground to cover in the couple of years. Um, so what has it just been like for you to be nationally recognized as a poet like that? Thank you for that. That's that's so kind. It's so gracious of you. Um, I feel like poetry is about connecting our inner lives with the inner lives of others. Hmm. And so if we think about somebody like um, like Emily Dickinson, who wrote for herself, she didn't share her work. And, and it, you know, so later on, we we're blessed to be able to read it. But, you know, she wasn't really writing for for others to read it necessarily and um and to, for publication or anything like that but but like look at what we would be missing out on if we did not have those poems and that window into her rich imaginative life poetry is meant to be a connection and to be spoken mm-hmm. out and the world and heard and received and to connect us um so recognition like that that you're talking about um it lets me know that someone's receiving that gift that I'm sending mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. Uh, and that they're in some way connecting with it and somebody is. And then it, that just tells me to keep working at it. Mm-hmm. It's a great gift back to me. To it's a, it's a little communication back saying, you know, yeah, go ahead and, you know, keep, keep doing this, keep following that calling. Um, so that's, that's how I see it. Mm-hmm. Right. Little- and uh, not not just from other people, but also hopefully from from the Lord. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Sure. Um, well, if you could just tell yourself, uh, your younger self, I mean, one thing now that you have the know as an experienced poet, what would that be? My younger self. I would say if you want your work to bear meaningful fruit, you need to plant your life, your writing life, in the soil of gratitude and wonder. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what I like. Well, what practical advice would you give to aspiring Christian poets, uh, just like places to submit, how to get exposure, all that? Um, I would say uh, smart, start, uh, start small, first of all. I started with haiku journals, so mm-hmm. find, find small journals that are looking to, you know, kind of get a start and, and, you know, look at, um, look at their guidelines and, and you could, well, you look at, you look at poets that you admire and you see where they have been published. You, you look at some of their earlier work and, you know, some of the earlier places they were published, where were they starting out and you, you follow the trail and then you, you know, you go from there. So that's how you right. discover different places. Um, you should welcome rejection. You know, no is an acronym for next opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> Fail is an acronym for first attempt at learning, as they say. Um, gotta get, gotta get ready. You gotta, uh, yes, great. Welcome that rejection. It's a numbers game. Um, I think it's important to learn poetic craft, to learn about the tradition, and learn what came before, so that you're speaking with, you're conversing with poets throughout time, not just, you know, this little small circle of the poems, the poets that happen to be alive right now. This little moment mm-hmm. that tiny the whole thing about writing is that you get you know you get to write to people down the line and um you want to listen to what the earlier poets said as well mm-hmm. i think it's important to find um wise and accomplished mentors wise mm-hmm. mentors not just any mentor um you, you should connect with fellow creatives creative people creative writers um uh workshop your writing but don't let workshop comments stifle your inner creative charism 
Mm. Read graciously and widely. Um, work on tuning your ear to the divine music. Write as a gift of self. Give of yourself when you write. I think it's important to pursue projects with eyes wide open. Reflect mm. on your motivation before you take on something. Why do you want this? Is that mm. a motivation um, and a good motivation? And then be realistic about the time commitments. And um, and be realistic about the it's you know it the writing life needs to be a little boring. You got to get in there and write, have quiet time. So it's it's not what you see on the outside. It's it's a lot of interior time and quiet time. Um, mm. And then uh, lastly, I would say you need to protect that creative time and that alone time. But as a as a Christian writer, I don't I, I don't always believe in like I think it's important to protect it. But when there's something important that you need to sacrifice it for, I think you need to sacrifice it. Like if somebody needs something that really, truly needs you and you need to be there, then uh, because that's what we always have to balance as as mothers, writers who are parents have to balance the need of their families. And for me, my students and my colleagues and and all those, you know, um, so um, I think that that's important to balance and to mm. reflect on and be mindful about. And then so choose, pray about it and choose the the balance that gives the greatest glory to God. Yeah, no, I, I really love the point about motivation as well, um, because it, it is, uh, I, I think that Matt Andrews, one of our prior guests and now our uh, poetry editor, uh, he made the point of writing can be a spiritual discipline. Um, and in that way, it's kind of part of your sanctification, which is just growing closer to God. Um, so I, I do think that everything that we do um not just uh, out in our daily lives, but also in writing, uh, that is subsumed under uh, the Christian worldview and um, needs to be questioned, just like any other motivation that we have, uh, whether to date this person or to uh, take this job or so on and so forth. So I really, I really do appreciate that point. Um, well, closing up then, Leslie, why don't you just uh, read us some of your poems? Wonderful. Well, do you want me to start with Cassiopeia since that's, the one that sure, a little bit of shameless self-promotion for us. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you for taking this poem and mm -hmm. giving it a home. Cassiopeia A, circa 1690. The light from the supernova has just reached Earth. 10,000 years ago, the neon rush of hydrogen expanded. Lavender and shock white formed in spectral web and dust. It swept up space debris in widening clouds that now and many generations hence will radiate a hundred thousand times our sun's ignoble energy. Asleep, snug in the glow, there floats an infant star. As ruddy arrogance is sometimes stripped away by rival arrogance, so this red giant tore away the other's skin. An envelope of hydrogen will learn some centuries from now. This violence bore all the gravity of insult fed and pressurized. The fighter's stance of these two stars led to a grand finale loosed in shockwave with a flash of insight, late-learned hamartia on a solar scale. Who sees the smudge of light for what it is? One amateur stargazing fool. The odds of witnessing a reckoning like this are minuscule. The learned astronomers were dozing while this putterer, with tired and star-strained eye, chanced on the gruesome fall, 
the supernova of the fiery queen whose might had once seemed unassailable. How rarely we discern what's happening the moment of the star's collapse. We miss the trident strike that hurls the proud queen deep into the sky, enthroned but bound to wheel around the north celestial pole and cling tight, hanging upside down through half the year. Fate will judiciously seize fire from one and dole it out to others, leaving naught of the progenitor except that dense core known as shame, but to new life as here. The infant neutron star, tucked warmly in its mist of carbon, lost in guiltless dreams. Mm. I've got to say, too, I really love your reading voice. It's so calming. <laughs> um, <yeah>. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, how about uh, Graceless now? Okay, Graceless. Before the surge of gravity... A heady urge wells up to turn, to claw the wet, loose graveled ledge and scramble back onto its lap. The air hums taut with shouting from the local kids who sailed this cliff all morning, all their lives, in fact, their dives inscribing splendid arcs that curve like lavender in wind. We find our jumper in midair for just a fraction of a blink two mere abysmal feet beyond the cliff, beneath the aqueducts that have for ages leashed the sky with pitiless gymnastic grace. A high relief of gangliness, her fingers splayed, her elbows all rough angles, failing to achieve with even happenstance good luck some form that might result in a smooth meeting with the water far below. We meet her thus in sight of tourists and bronze locals dwarfed by architectural finesse, poor victim of glass half full whim, smacked by risk, the risk and risk reward and dubbed postmodern poster child for acute onset second thought. <laughs> Very good. All right. And uh, then I think we have the cathedral sees morning. Well, the last one in the chapbook, and that's where the chapbook gets its name. Mm -hmm. The cathedral sees morning. Her saints' faces flayed long ago. The molas bell on the near bank bears the past like a brittle scroll. Certain blocks high in her facade seek daylight with empty sockets, remnants of a graveyard past carved by Gallo-Roman hands, so that on ancestral days the living could break wine-soaked bread with the dead. It must have been a hopeful act to lift those stones up heavenward, for this is no mausoleum. Webbed windows, ash gray from without, blazon gem-bright stories within. Through the triumphs and agonies, dawn reaches into the hushed space where mea culpa's flicker of alcove walls. Bouquet rays gather at the knees of the found, petaled in hair on folds of clothes, calling the garden up out of the grave. Mm, yeah, I love that one. Well, Leslie, it's been uh, such a pleasure talking to you. I really appreciate your uh, coming on and just your time. And uh, I keep t I pray for the continued success of your work. So thank, thank you. you again. Really, thank you a bunch. All right. All right. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.